Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Series 8, Episode 1 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello. I can't believe I've got to eight series. This was definitely a podcast that was meant to be something for me to do during lockdown, maybe for a couple of series. And now here we are, eight series later. I believe, I might be wrong, you know I get things wrong, but I believe this is the 102nd episode. It is incredible that 102 people have shared their story with me and a few more actually, because I've got some in the bank to release in the coming weeks. So if you're a new listener, hello, welcome. There's loads in the back catalogue. Go and have a look through. And if you've been here since the beginning, ah, I really appreciate it. If you're someone that likes the podcast, please do uh, share it with your friends. The more listeners we get, the more I can make. I love making this podcast. It is a real passion project for me and I appreciate every single person that listens to it. I have got a great episode for you today. Liv Hewson, a brilliant actor who, well, there's lots of things that they've been in, but something that I have loved recently is Yellow Jackets. I absolutely loved it and I was delighted that Liv took the time to come and chat to me. So that'll be coming up shortly. But as ever, I will share a couple of emails from the listeners. If you want to get in touch, you always can. If you want to share your story with me, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Okay, let's start here. Hi Susie, I've been listening since the beginning but I finally decided I wanted to write in to say thank you. Your podcast couldn't have started at a better time. When lockdown began, I went from being at university where I was able to be my openly queer authentic self to having to move back home where I'm a shell of myself, being forced back into the closet due to not being out to my parents and having to censor my opinions and thoughts to avoid conflict in the home that I was stuck in. Living in a homophobic household as a queer person began taking its toll on my mental health and as lockdown progressed, I felt that all the hard work I had done untangling my internalised homophobia and finding out who I really was was being undone. But all was not lost. I discovered your podcast and quickly other podcasts with queer representation, including like-minded friends, began appearing on Spotify. Each day I went for a walk, I could put on my headphones and listen to you talk to people who were part of the LGBTQIA plus community. It was an hour a day where I felt seen, connected and part of the community, which I had lost all contact with. As we all know, a lockdown eventually ended and I managed to move away from my family and begin to rebuild my life again. I'm now a teacher and unlike many teachers in the past, especially during section 28, 
I am so fortunate to be able to be my authentic queer self at school. I created the first LGBTQIA plus space for students, which formed a safe space for students to ask questions, share worries and meet like-minded friends. Sorry that this is long-winded. It's not at all. It's been a beautiful email. But the reason that I wanted to get in touch is to say thank you for the podcast and the incredible guests who speak so openly about their experiences. Each listener to this podcast will have their own unique story and now all have a shared sense of belonging through listening. So if anyone feels alone, just know you are part of this community who are all listening to this great podcast. And this person has been asked to, to stay anonymous, so I will, of course, respect that wish. But thank you so much for getting in touch. And uh, I thought it's the beginning of the year, so I thought sharing one from a teacher, beginning of the school year, I should say, sharing one from a teacher felt like a nice thing to do. So what a lucky, what lucky kids at that school, what lucky young people to have a teacher like you. I wish I'd had a teacher like you. But thank you for listening. And I'm so pleased that during lockdown, this podcast provided the community that you that you needed. That's exactly why I did it. So thank you. Right, let's have another one. Dearest Susie, you will never know the invaluable comfort you and Tom Allen have brought me over the last couple of years. That's a very nice thing to say. I'm sitting here rather late at night when I should be in bed thinking you're never going to write that email to Susie Ruffle unless you do it right now. I was wondering what your thoughts are on someone deciding they were better off not being in a relationship, possibly ever. I'm a gay American man. Trust me, I know what the fuck are they even doing in this country. I've had three long-term relationships in my life and each was tumultuous and tragic in its own way. With each, there was a bridge I simply couldn't cross with them and I ended the relationships to find myself feeling so incredibly free and relieved. I certainly brought my own issues to each. I've been diagnosed with anxiety disorders and something called avoidant personality disorder. Most of us have experienced and even exhibited avoidant behaviour to some degree in our lives, because it's a very common thing. We all have things that we want to avoid in life. AVPD takes that to the extreme. I avoid so many things to a detrimental degree. The nature of a personality disorder, however, is that my entire personality has malformed around a set of behaviours and codes. It's so ingrained in everything that I do, which means I'm constantly finding new ways that my brain has gone to absurd lengths to try and avoid any uncomfortable feeling. I know, it's a lot, but they don't call them personality disorders because they're a good time. Unfortunately, this means there's no truly getting rid of it, only learning and adjusting and doing my best every day. The point of this is I have a very exhausting time living with myself many days. The mental load is immense and the more aware you are of it, not to mention my physical medical conditions, but yeesh, who has the time? Add on to that anxiety and an entire other human being, the thought just stresses me out. Being in the situation stresses me out. I start to feel trapped and misunderstood. I struggle to open up about things. And no matter how much I try and explain or talk about it, people don't seem to really understand how complicated it makes figuring out myself and a relationship. Before the last one ended, I said, if this one doesn't work, I was done. I didn't have it in me to do a relationship again. I didn't know if that would be permanent or not, but it's certainly what I felt like then and feel more and more every day now. Maybe I'll change my mind someday, but maybe not. 
I've been asked if I'm aromantic or asexual and I've given it a lot of thought, but I'm really not. I experience both attractions. While I definitely think there's good and nice parts to having a boyfriend, I just think that a relationship is too much of a mental drain on my already maxed out brain and body. I guess I ask because I don't feel that one often sees people talking about choosing to be alone indefinitely. At least I don't. So what do you think, Susie? Is it acceptable or normal to say, I'm good to the whole relationship thing? Or should I consider giving it another shot? Your perspective would mean the world. The work you've done with this podcast has provided a measurable value to the world and I truly believe it's made it a bit of a better place. That is a very kind thing to say. Please give my love to Tom and keep up the amazing work. All my love, Justin. And Justin said, feel free to name me. Well, first of all, Justin, I mean, I, I'm, I'm only a comedian and I, I, I don't have the answers. And, you know, I would, I would be the last person to sort of try and sound like I'm a therapist or I understand sort of psychology or, or behaviour disorders or anything like that. But if you want my, uh, my, my opinion as your sort of podcast friend that you've not met yet, um, I would say if it feels right to you, then it's probably right. If it feels better for you every day more and more that you prefer not being in a relationship, then you're probably right, you know? And sometimes things change and sometimes feelings change and sometimes you meet people that change those feelings. But I think it is acceptable and normal to say that, that you don't want a relationship. I think whatever feels right for you is acceptable and normal. You know, as long as you're not hurting anyone else, why shouldn't it be? I don't know if that's useful. I don't know that I uh, that I give the best advice, but I wanted to share this email because I thought it was really honest and very brave to share your feelings with uh, me and the listeners. And maybe someone's listening who feels very similar and that might have been helpful to them. With regards to what I think, I don't know how great my advice is, but I think trust your gut. If it's feeling better and better for you every day, then do that. And like love comes in all shapes and ways into your life, doesn't it? Like you mentioned Tom Allen, who I do my other podcast, Like Minded Friends with. You know, he brings a different kind of love into my life that's not, you know, it's not um, it's not a, a relationship like, like the relationship I have with my wife, of course. But, you know, someone understanding you doesn't need to be someone that you're in a relationship with it can be a, a dear friend that just gets you I don't know maybe that's helpful <laughs> maybe it's not but I appreciate Justin you getting in touch and being so honest okay should we get on with today's conversation I think we should I don't know if any of what I just said made sense but hopefully it did to Justin okay as I mentioned I've got a brilliant episode with Liv Houston. I loved this I think you can tell all the way through how excited I am I hope that it comes across as sort of just loving it rather than cringe. But um, if it's cringe, don't tell me. Okay, here's that conversation. Oh, listener, I am so excited for today's guest. Honestly, maybe the most excited I've been all year. Liv Hewson is who I'm speaking to today. And Liv is in my favourite TV show of the last couple of years, the compulsively watchable Yellow Jackets, which has just been nominated for Outstanding Drama Series at the Emmys. And Liv is outstanding as Van, a young footballer who gets stranded in the wilderness after a plane crash. A beautiful, empathetic and tender performance. You might have also seen them in Netflix, Santa Clarita Diet, or in the series 
series Top of the Lake, a force of nature on screen, and I am delighted they've taken the time to chat to me today. Hello, Liv. Hi. Oh, my God. That's so nice. Thank you. Well, I, I'm thrilled. When I saw that you'd watched one of my videos on Instagram, I was like, oh, my God. I yeah. need to, oh, hello. Hello. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was very, very keen of me because my wife and I absolutely devoured Yellow Jacket. So you must be having quite a moment at the moment. Oh, man. I mean, it's so funny to think about it because it's like, I mean, like, yeah, like the show's doing really well. It's awesome. But then I drive myself a little nuts thinking about it because I'm like, well, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. Like, I don't know that my day to day is is that different, but I'm but it's really exciting. And like, I love the show. I'm very proud of it. So it's always a thrill to see people respond to it in ways that are similar to how I get excited about it. And, you know, it's just like, it's what you want when you make stuff. Like, you want it to reach people and, and you want people to see what has got you so excited about making it. So it's like a positive feedback loop. It's really lovely. How was it when you first got the script? Okay, so the script was the first thing that excited me about it. When I auditioned for the pilot, my primary reaction was like, oh, I just hope this pilot gets picked up. Like, I hope this mm. show gets made. I remember walking into audition for it thinking like, oh, listen, if I don't get this, like I'm excited to watch it. Like Yellow Jackets is exactly the kind of show that I would just be watching as an audience member anyway. So as mm -hmm. an actor, like that's the most exciting stuff to then get to be a part of as well. Now, you live in LA now, is that right? Mm -hmm. I do. But you're an Aussie. Yes. Yeah. I grew up in uh, Canberra, which is the capital of Australia. It's like yes. a little politics town. It's like in between Sydney and Melbourne on the southeast. That's where I'm from. Yeah, I've been there. You, yeah, of course. Right. You would have performed there. Yeah, I think I, I did a show there at one point. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in Canberra. Yeah. Were you sort of a theatre kid? I was. I was. Don't worry, me too. Yeah. You said that like apologetically. That is exactly what I want to hear. I'm like, me too. <laughs> it's funny because it's not, it's not apology exactly, but it is a sort of like, um, there's a settling in to it. It's not, it's not resignation. It's like, a, but it's a sort of settling. <laughs> or it's like, yeah, I really fucking was, dude. Like, I just, like absolutely. I started training with like a, a theater company in my hometown as a teenager. That's like how I, I learned how to do this on a technical level. But I was also like, I did drama in high school to like um, the most intense extent possible, you know, like that was always a primary focus for me. Canberra is like uh, a little on the smaller side. It's like a population of about 400,000, I think. And it's very green and sort of like spread out and quiet. It was like designed in one go on purpose. So like, it's quite structured, like it's a lot of concentric circles, there's a lot of roundabouts, and there's a lot of like very beautiful land like nearby, a lot of like strange, interesting public sculpture, like it's quite beautiful and it's quiet. And uh, I always used to say about Canberra that like it's a lovely place to be a child and it's like a calm, lovely place to be an adult, but it's a terrible place to be a teenager which is maybe more about just what my experience was like than what the city is like. Because there's nothing to do. Yeah, it's a lot of like being bored and getting drunk in parks, you know, and like, <laughs> it's sure. like, okay, I guess we'll either make some art or some trouble and maybe both, <laughs> maybe we'll end up doing both of those things. Sometimes that's where the best art comes from. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so there was, it, it was a lot of like learning how to entertain yourself in good and bad ways, you know. And do you think that's where the the joy of the theatre, like make-believe? I think so. I mean, storytelling was always very important to me and it was always very important in the house I grew up in. And I was a really big reader as a kid. Like there was always music around and um, 
it was just kind of like woven into our lives as a matter of course, where it's like, well, yeah, like for pleasure, you would learn to play an instrument or like for pleasure, you would watch a movie and then dissect what was interesting about the movie or like for pleasure, we'll go and like listen to this band that's playing in a park or whatever. Like this is like an active ongoing thing that is like woven into what it's like to be a person. It's like, it's important, but it's also every day. So I, it always mattered to me and I always loved it. But like performing, I realized that I liked in a specific way when I was a kid, like just as opportunities came up to do it, I very quickly was like, oh yeah, I think it's going to be this forever for me. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> What was it like growing up there? Because I've, I've travelled a bit around Australia and I've interviewed lots of Australians on, on this show. What was it like for you in Canberra as a young queer person? Yeah, what was, what was it like? Were you aware of any queer people around? Did, like, did you see anyone and go, like, I remember seeing some lesbians and it was thrilling that they existed. Oh, definitely. And that feeling is so special. Do you know that musical Fun Home? I literally do. I hoped you were about to bring this up. <laughs> I had like a like a fun short-lived podcast with a, a dear friend of mine where we like also interviewed queer people. And my recurring question for everybody was like, what was your ring of keys moment? Right. Okay, great. Like, like what was your moment of like baby queer recognition? Because I think it's so special. It is. Yeah. So what was it? What was it? I don't know. I don't know what it was for me. I don't think that I have specific memories of clocking queer people in real life at a young age, mm -hmm. I don't think. I remember um, hearing the word homosexual for the first time in an episode of The Simpsons. Right. The episode Homer's Phobia, which I think John Waters guest stars in. And Marge says to Homer about a friend of his, I hope I'm remembering the episode correctly, but she definitely says, this guy is a homosexual. And I turned to my dad and I was like, what does that mean? And my dad said, that's a man who prefers the company of other men. Cause like in the context of that image, that's like, that's what Marge was describing. And like, you know, God bless him. He was like, I, uh, I know what question you're asking. Okay, here's what I think the right thing to say is right now, um, which I really understand. So it was like hearing the words and the definitions and not really knowing what they meant. And then as I was sort of like uh, finishing primary school, like grade five and six and sex ed was starting, my parents, in addition to the stuff that I was doing at school, got me like a book about puberty and they were like, read this. And then if you have any questions about what you've read in this, you can come and talk to us. And that's totally cool, which I think was a very cool move. Yeah, that's lovely. But in that book in particular, there was like quite comprehensive information about um, gay people in it being like, yeah, like some, some people are like interested in the same kind of person as them. And some people are interested in both. And like, that's everybody and that's a possibility and that's fine. And I think by then I knew that or like had an awareness of that, but that was a time that I remember seeing that information like woven into what was being communicated to me on purpose, you know? Right. But I remember being like nine or 10 and being like, yeah, I like girls, I'm pretty sure. And then very quickly going, I will think about that later. <laughs> yeah, that is gonna go in a little box exactly. in the back of my brain <laughs> exactly. and I will not deal with it yet. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Were there out kids at school? Because I know you're a, a bit younger than me. Yeah. That would have been inconceivable in my school. I was the out kid at school. That's awesome. Yeah. I had my first girlfriend when I was like 15. And we were in, what grade were we in? 10 by then? 9 or 10? Mm-hmm. But yeah, my girlfriend and I like were the out couple in our year. So like for a second, that was a position I had. Yeah. Was it scary? Uh No, no. I mean, there were like unpleasant things about it. Like I remember being in a food court with her and like some private school girls throwing rolled up bits of paper at us. Mm. And I, yeah, like stuff like, you know, being told not to hold hands or or, like being told that like our affection with each other was inappropriate when there were like straight couples doing the same thing. And like, that's fine, you know, stuff like that. But then I also remember like a seventh grader, like going up to my best friend and being like, can you tell Liv thank you for me? It was a multifaceted experience. And then also at the same time, it was quite matter of fact for me because I was like, well, I'm not doing anything. Like I'm just dating her. Mm-hmm. This is just what is naturally occurring to me, you know, and then everything else sort of feels like it's happening outside of, of me or the experience that I'm having. So I, I didn't think about it all that much really beyond registering that like some of the ways we were being treated was incredibly unfair and Mm. And also recognizing that being out was a kind of power or like a powerful thing, an important thing. And I mean, there were other queer people around, like a bunch of <laughs> bunch of people like came out in a domino effect in the subsequent years, as tends to happen, you know, like the sort of gay dominoes that everybody ends up doing around that bracket of your life, I think, like. By the time we finished high school, it was like, oh, yeah, here we all are, you know? Yeah. Which was lovely. That's really, I don't know, inspiring that you were, because I feel like now you are fiercely out and you're unapologetically yourself, as you rightly should be, and you're talking about your experience in such a open and beautiful and honest way. But it sounds like you've always been that person. You were brave enough to be that person when you were young as well. Thank you. Which I definitely wasn't. It's funny because it's kind of true and also it's true at the same time that I like tortured myself about it for years, you know, where it's like there was this piece of me that had some clarity or some expression about it quite young. And also I put myself through the ringer about it anyway, you know, where it was like I still... 
battled the kind of internalized homophobia that like makes you like check every few years. Like, well, I don't know. I should check, I guess. It's like, who is that for? Why? What do you mean? <laughs> you know, or like a lack of ease with oneself that means that you like act against your own desire or like don't actively act in league with your own desire. It is interesting to think about for me, like, those two equal truths of my experience as a young person, which like there was always a piece of me that was quite out and clear and expressive and also a piece of me that was quite like punitive and um, stifling and like tricky. Like those two things existed within me in equal weight. Like I knew so young that I was queer and frankly that I was non-binary. I knew so young and it still took me up until into adulthood to like settle into myself completely you know oh totally I, I knew I was a lesbian from before my teens but it wasn't until I was in my late 20s early 30s even that I really dressed how I wanted to dress yeah without checking yeah. that I was doing it in the right way or not being too this or not being too that or I don't want to be what about if it's recognizable from the first time someone sees me and now I'm like well, give a fuck about that yeah. but there was still even though I was sort of out and even in like more of a public way with my stand-up there was still sort of elements of I look back at some of my early stand-up now and go oh I was sort of internally homophobic quite publicly <laughs> which is quite grim but there was sort of a way of managing my fears of what people thought about me. Yeah. It's funny that you bring up looking at a past version of yourself because I think about myself all the time. Like whenever I come across images of myself at different points throughout my life, I'm like, oh, I can see what that mm. person is at peace with and what they're not. And like what that person yeah. is struggling with and what they're not. And that must be big for you because it's in like a very public sphere. Yeah. Like I imagine there's pictures of you on like a red carpet. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, Who's that person? I mean, particularly in terms of like coming into like a sense of peace and security with my gender identity, like I was out to my friends as a teenager. And then when I started acting for a living coming into my 20s, I sort of like recloseted myself because I was like, well, obviously I can't do this for a living and say that. Like, obviously that's not allowed. So it was like, okay, I guess I'll just pretend to be a woman for the rest of my life. And maybe people will read my diaries later and then it'll be fine. It's just like, oh my God, just compromise it to an unsustainable and nonsensical degree, right? Because it's like, that is going to suck. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I remember when I, when I got into drama school, I had a girlfriend and I remember thinking, I can choose now whether to be a lesbian or an actress. Yeah. And I thought, I'll be an actress. Mm -hmm. And then went to drama school straight. Mm -hmm. Because I thought, well, my, my only frame of reference is like, Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi. Yeah. And that didn't go good for them when they first came out. No. And that's the thing is that like the awareness of the stakes and like that, that fear is actually not irrational. And like that's mm. the painful, miserable thing about it is that like the fear you had of like, I think my sexuality and my career are in conflict. It's like, well, historically that has been and mm. often still is very true. Mm. You know? that like the stakes are very high and like it does change what it is like to be in public and what it is like to do that job and like that is the infuriating piece of it you know when you say you were out but then when you moved to LA to act sort of for a living you, you went back in the closet were you getting that were you getting those feelings from anything outside of yourself had it been suggested to you were you allowed to be out with regards to sexuality or did you just think I'm not going to talk about myself at all it was really specifically about being non-binary. That was the thing that felt impossible to be 
expressive about. Oh, and understandably. Yeah. Because it feels like you're a trailblazer in, in that respect. I really do appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Liv, is, Liv is wincing. <laughs> I can see them and they are wincing. <laughs> but it's just, I guess it was an extension of the impossibility I had felt about it as a teenager realizing it about myself in the first place where it's like I remember figuring out that I was non-binary and then five seconds later figuring out that I probably couldn't tell very many people. Did you read the term non-binary? How did you even come across it? I did. So I knew that I was queer and um, Mm -hmm. I was coming off the back of recovering from a quite serious eating disorder and like piecing together feelings that I had about my body that I hadn't dealt with ever, you know, and like feelings about my sexuality and like what it was like to be myself. I'm like, okay, something's going on with me and something's always been going on with me. And like, what is it exactly? Because it's something about my body and it's something about being in it. And it's it's in there somewhere. And I swear to God, like, I'm going to figure out what it is. And did that click in in puberty when your body started changing that sort of disconnect? Yeah, it did. So, you know, a bit of a clue there. I was just like scrabbling around for like queer history information, like queer community information. Cause I was like, I know this applies to me. I know I'm in here and I know, I know this is where the answers are for me. I know this is important. And like, it's important point blank because like this is information about the human experience that for some reason isn't as available as other kinds of information. So I was just like taking books home from the library. I was like furrowing around my city. I was like digging through stuff my parents had or looking for things on my own. I was looking at stuff online. It was just like bits and pieces from everywhere. And then, and then like in reading about like people's varied experiences of gender throughout history and throughout culture, I was like, okay, hang on, like hang on a second. So I think this actually might be more complex than anyone's told me before. And it was just like, It's just a lot of things coalescing at once, like my understanding of an interest in feminism and like queer theory and like gender studies, just just on my own, just like doing a bunch of research on my own. But in doing that, I came across the term non-binary and immediately was like, oh, that's it. Like, yeah, that's that's what my deal is 100 percent. And then like reading about the possibility of like alternative pronoun use, like people using mm-hmm. like Z and here in the eighties and nineties mm-hmm. or like ways that people have been spoken about in different languages and at different points in time. It's just like, oh, so I hang on. So I actually have some say in this. Like if something feels correct, if something is correct for me, I can just ask for it and get it. And that's fine. Like that was huge. And then five seconds off the back of that was like, okay, I'm non-binary and the way that I want people to refer to me is with they, them pronouns. And that feels great. And I think I've solved it. And I can't tell anyone this. Like I told my close friends and that was it for a long time. So as I was starting to act, I was like, well, I have had the understanding for some time that like my friends can know this about me and my family will at some point know this about me. And to hope for anything else is madness, you know? So it was kind of a non-issue. Like, so nobody nobody told me what decisions to make about it because I didn't even let it get that far. I remember as I was starting out, the one thing I allowed myself was like leaving little breadcrumbs for those in the know to recognize. Like I had my pronouns in my bio on like social media accounts of mine and I was like the people who know what that means will know what I'm talking about because this is like a while ago now yeah before we were all doing it exactly so I was like but the other non-binary people will clock that and I will make that be enough for me and then gradually I would start getting asked about that more and more and 
I remember the first time a journalist actually, when I was promoting a television show, was like, hey, um, say say them in your bio, is there something you want to talk about? And at the time I was like, yes, soon. <laughs> like, yes, right. soon, but but give me a second. Cause I it started to dawn on me that like not only do I want to be more expressive about this, I'm gonna need to be more expressive about this because the current state of affairs is not sustainable at all. But it took it took me some time to like internalize that that was possible and that like not only was it going to be okay but it was going to be better it's going to be actively good for me better for me it wasn't gonna ruin anything it was actively going to improve things and then it gradually got more and more comfortable being expressive about it the more and more I did it and now it's like I wouldn't go back for anything yeah it's so interesting you say about reading throughout history because I think for lots of queer people when we you sort of go quite often or certainly people of my generation you're a a little younger than me but there's something enormously liberated when you realize that people like you have been before oh my god yeah yeah you know and you go oh I'm sort of connected to this big history of people I'm even though you know biologically we don't have a link but there's this link between us that I can't put my finger on the words for it right now but it means that I get you yes you get me and there's there's a connection for us it's so special yeah yeah i was reading a novel recently about lesbians in the 20s yeah and i found it thrilling Mm -hmm. like how they lived the language that they used how they like showed themselves to each other in a public place without straight people realizing and i couldn't stop reading it it was it was so thrilling to be like ah people like me we've always been we literally always have We really have. Yeah. And the erasure serves a purpose. You know, it is Mm -hmm. not accidental that that information is hard to find or that that information is like Mm -hmm. rare or precious because it allows people to pretend that queerness is new and therefore not legitimate. You know, Mm -hmm. like the, the ahistorical nature of it is not an accident. So it's like when people have the knee jerk reaction of like, this is made up and recent what that reaction is counting on is that there isn't a history to refer back to, you know, it's like, but there is, there absolutely is. Oh, I mean, yeah. You know, it's not surprising that some of the first books that were burnt in the second world war were books about gender identity and sexuality. Exactly. Trying to stop people being allowed to read that they exist, which, you know, we're seeing now across the States. What's it like being in the States at the moment? Because it's something I've sort of flirted with coming over and gigging at some point or another. But do you feel, obviously you're in LA, mm-hmm. which I assume is progressive. Yeah, most like my experience of it has been, yeah. Yeah, but does it feel, do you feel like you're living somewhere that's quite hostile to people like us at the moment? I mean, like structurally, that just is true right now. You know, I'm, like I'm very conscious of that. And then I'm also conscious of the fact that I, I feel that in the air, other places as well. Like I, I feel mm-hmm. that that's kind of true about the UK right now too. Oh, for sure. The UK's yeah, it's a bin fire. Yeah. And Australia's definitely not immune to that either. And like, that's the sort of like sinister, uneasy thing for me at the moment is I'm like, I don't think it's about place necessarily. Like the structural backslide that's happening right now is a bit of a web and that's what concerns me so much. So I, I am really conscious of that. And on like an individual emotional level, like it makes me incredibly fiercely determined, to be honest. Um, Cause it's like, we are not going anywhere. And like, I'm not gonna entertain this. Like I'm not, I'm not gonna give this the time of day. Like it, it builds like a wall in me or something. 
where it's like, it makes me so fiercely determined to ensure that the future will be bright for queer and trans people, you know, where it's like, I feel shored up almost. Where it's mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm going to be doing everything in my power to make sure that the future is a safe and happy one. And you will have to deal with me, you know? That's how I feel. Well, I think it's brilliant. Thank you. I think it's brilliant. I'm gushing over you a lot, Liv. I'm sorry about that. No, thank you. I read quite a lot about the gender euphoria you felt Mm -hmm. since your top surgery. Yeah. And I wondered if you'd share a little bit about that with me and the listeners about how you came to decide to do that. I know that some non-binary people choose to, some non-binary people choose not to do that. Yeah. And yeah, what that euphoria was like for you. Oh, man. I always try and get as much euphoria into this podcast as possible because I think it's so easy to find so much certainly when I speak to someone that's trans or non-binary to get as much joy in because I think that places like this is where people will maybe come and seek it out if they need a little bit of that yeah I think it's really important so I knew that like top surgery was something that I wanted or that would be necessary for me to like be at ease I knew that so young I remember being like 16 or 17 and talking to my friends about it and like I tricked my mom into ordering me a binder off the internet and then like I wore it for a while but realized that like for me a lot of the discomfort was tactile was about sensation so like strapping something to me and making me more aware of my chest was helpful to a point but like ultimately didn't solve anything so it was just like it was a constant matter of like compromise of like okay I guess I'll just live like this I suppose but I, I knew that I wanted it for so long. I thought about I thought about it for 10 years, for so long. Mm. Like the surgery center that I ended up going to, I had their website open on a tab on my computer for five years. Wow. And sometimes I would just go and look at it and then I would close it and open it again and just like stare at it or just like have it open in my web browser and just like sometimes refer to it there, but then go away and do something else. But I knew, I knew that it would help me, but I... I didn't think it was possible. It was like, oh, it's gonna hurt my career or like I'm not gonna be taken seriously as a non-binary patient. There were so many internal blocks that I felt about it. I felt like a lot of shame about it almost. Or in, it just didn't feel like I was allowed somehow where it was like, this is what I want, but like, who cares what you want? You know, I think is a game that I played with myself for a long time. It was quite punishing the way that I would run myself in circles about it. And then I think like the domino effect of me finally getting it probably started with a few things, probably started with starting to be out publicly and realizing that that was not only all right, but actively good. And and then to be mm-hmm. honest, I think a big part of it was um, the psychological changes that began as the pandemic was starting. Right. You know, just in terms of like, Oh, what are, what are we doing? (laughs) Like, um, you know, the, the complete psychological adjustment that I think everybody's gone through in some form over the last few years that will happen as you deal with like a, a huge seismic event that causes the world to shut down for a while. Like, People reevaluated their relationship to work. Like people mm-hmm. reevaluated their relationship to like the cities they live in, or like the friendships they have, or the partners they had. Or like I think naturally a big change like that will have a run-on effect for a lot of people. And I, I, I think for me a part of that was um like a priority shift almost. Um, not to say that it's only about the pandemic because I think it was about a lot of things. 
But when I think about how I was feeling at the beginning of 2020 and how I'm feeling now, I do think there is a thread of my priorities changing. My work is not the most important thing or like Mm. I am allowed to reach for the things that are like self-actualizing for me and life is so short and like what what am I prevaricating around this for I deserve to be at peace and like comfortable and so does everybody else you know that's kind of all I have to say about it really because I I feel like I'm still articulating that piece of it but I just went through a lot of significant psychological shifts and one of them was kind of a fuck it you know, of like, fuck it, I'm like, what am I doing? You know? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, I don't know what it's like for your work, but certainly for me, like, everything just stopped. Yeah. There was just nothing. And there was a moment where you sort of go, oh, I have to be able to exist without performing. Yeah. All of the time. Like, after about a week, my wife was like, I can't be your only audience member. <laughs> like, this has to stop. I can't bear this. I love you, but I can't bear this, which is fair. But, you know, for me, like, and I think for lots of people in sort of our industry or anyone that's sort of, you know, been a real career person, you know, you just put the headlights on and just like fucking go for it and go for it and go for it. And you're aware there's 10 people behind you for the job and you've got to go into this and go in for that and you've got to learn this and learn that. And you just got on this treadmill and then it, it forced this stop in all of us. And I think for many of us, it sort of made you go, oh, what, what am I without my job because it is just my job yeah it can't be everything because then because jobs you know you have good years bad years and who am I in a bad year yeah you've got to be able to still be at peace with who you are well I did I had to be happy when I wasn't working which was a bit of a mental I got a therapist it was all good the irony is right that like once you are comfortable with yourself you get better at your job (laughs) A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So funny. For sure. For sure. As soon as you are at peace, I think as a performer, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, on stage or on, on camera, as soon as you are not trying to be a thing, you're just doing it. But it works. It works. <laughs> so and silly. you go, oh, fucking hell, what was I doing for 10 years? I know. Exactly. Like putting on silly hats and pretending to be people. You've just got to, it makes no sense. Now, if you don't mind, I'd love to talk a bit more about Yellow Jackets. Please, yeah. One thing I would love to know, because people that haven't seen it, I mean, just stop this podcast, pause it, come back to it, please, <laughs> but go and watch it. But the fact there are sort of two time periods happening, one of the young girls in the wilderness and then, sorry, young people in the wilderness. Yeah, Travis is there too. <laughs> yep, absolutely. I keep thinking he's going to die, but he hasn't yet for where I'm at. But then there's the adults in the future and you're sort of working out who's lived, mm-hmm. who's been eaten. Oh, yeah. The actors are so brilliant at being each other. That's so good. I want to know, like, how much, like, rehearsal happened? What, because even down to, like, how people are walking, how they're holding their, the way that they're using the dialogue in that you could speak things five, 10, 20 different ways, but they all seem to have, like, the entity of the character. How did that come about? It really varies from pair to pair. Okay. There was no, um, as far as I'm aware, anyway, there, there was never any, like, structural rehearsal process as designed. Right. The show was really up to like the pairs of actors playing the same character to decide how much process they wanted to share. So it really varied from person to person. Like I know at one stage during season one, like Jasmine texted Tawny to be like, do we say either or either? Like, what are we? (laughs) 
<laughs> Sam and Christina, like they both pushed their glasses up the same way, never talked about it once. Like just both automatically did that. So, but like have talked about other things, but that one just fucking cinched right away. So it, it varies. And what about you for season two? How much did you guys... Lauren and I talked a bit about Van and like asked each other some questions and like swapped Mm -hmm. thoughts about some things and Simone playing older Lottie too. Those two were in Mm -hmm. kind of a unique position of like having like a set frame of reference already. Well, like Mm -hmm. I think for the other pairs, like particularly in season one, it was like, okay, the two of us decide who this person is together now. Whereas with Lauren and Simone this year, it was like, okay, so here's what Liv and Courtney have been doing, you know? Yeah. And then we springboard out together from there. So that was like a fun piece of it too was like being a frame of reference for somebody and then as a result like suddenly being confronted with the way you stand yeah you you see someone else doing it which was really thrilling but it's been so fun to watch what Lauren brings to it like when she came on board that was something that I was very passionate about was like I want you to have equal ownership over this this person as well like I want to see what you think like what you decide to do what you want because like that's the exciting thing about this experience is like who knows what they're going to be like in 25 years you know yeah nobody so who is this person in 25 years like oh my god I don't know what do you think like let's figure it out it's been really exciting and it's it, it obviously to watch it feels like such a sort of ensemble and sort of collaborative piece when you're filming, is it a script that you guys have to like stick to word for word or are there like, because it feels loose when you watch it because it's, you know, when you're like walking through the snow or, or the scenes in the house when things get a bit crazy. Yeah. How much of that is sort of scripted word for word, exactly what you've done in the rehearsal room to, or at the read through to, or, or is there moments of improvisation? I mean, the writing on, on this show is so good. And like, it's we're, so good. We're so lucky to work with the team of writers that we do. I, I love improvising and do it quite a bit. And then sometimes in like group scenes, like if like the rhythm of something is tweaked a certain way or, it will, or like it's, there is a tiny bit of flexibility, I would say. I mean, off like we don't really need it. That shows how tight the script is. Yeah. Yeah, there's moments where you sort of go, as someone that has been on set before you go oh that that looks really organic but I guess if the writing's that good yeah that's what it does yeah sometimes we'll chuck things in there and then sometimes like the writers will be on set obviously so sometimes it'll be a matter of like going over to them and being like hi tell me if you hate this but I, I actually <laughs> would love to say this instead is that okay and oftentimes they're like yeah totally or sometimes they're like actually we need this for this reason but totally understand why you've asked right. so like there is there is like a bit of a back and forth in that respect, which I love because like that's not necessary. Like we could just as easily be told like, go away, (laughs) say what we told you to say and stop asking questions. But like we all care about the show so much and love living in these characters so much that it's like there's a passion for it. So the times where we do improvise or where we do for clarity on something or us to make an adjustment, like it never feels charged for me. It's always like, I feel like a kid in a sandbox, you know, where it's like, oh, I just, I think it would be actually really cool if we put a stick in the sandbox over here. Is that crazy? You tell me if that's crazy, you know, but oftentimes they're like, no, a stick would be great. Let's do it. That's nice. And it's sort of left it open for a third series. We got renewed. Yeah. Great. That's exciting. When do you begin? Well, it depends on what happens with this. Oh, the writer strike. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course. So you're on pause. Yeah, totally. Totally on pause. Like everyone else. Exactly. And it's like, Absolutely, you know, absolutely. We're yes, on pause. Absolutely. We got to get this sorted out, and everything else can wait. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for you? Obviously, waiting until the writer's strike finishes, but you write as well. Is that right? I have before. So when I was younger, actually, like the first thing I ever made a little bit of money doing creatively was writing plays as like a younger, um, it's like in my late teens. It's been a while. It's been a while since I've like finished or put anything out. But like, I'm like, I tap away at stuff for my own amusement all the time. And it's something that I love to do that I know how to do that I could totally see myself like making a piece of my professional life again. Well, so we'll see, but that's more like long-term future stuff for me, I think. The immediate short-term, like for, for me and for everybody right now, is like twiddling our thumbs a little bit. It's like using this opportunity to like stand in really strong solidarity with each other and make the best of like the time that it affords us, you know? Or It's a very important moment in time for our industry and it's like about giving that the weight that it deserves and then yeah you're absolutely right without the words Mm -hmm. what we got yeah yeah the stories yeah it's really important it feels quite historic to be honest it's like what happens in and around this particular moment in time will have a massive run-on effect for what the future of the industry is like and that's really important it's like what happens next year is really important yeah Absolutely. Liv, I've loved this conversation. I'm just going to ask you one more question, which is what I ask absolutely everyone that comes on the show. Yeah. And uh, I'm maybe thinking of the version of Liv at school, holding hands with your girlfriend, maybe girls at a private school being little bitches over there. (laughs) And if you could pick up a phone to them or indeed to someone that is experiencing something a little bit similar at the moment, working out who they are in the world, if you could give them just a little bit of advice, a little bit of encouragement, what would you say? Hmm. You, you are sticking around. So it is in your best interest to start acting like it as soon as possible. Perfect. That is the perfect way to end this conversation. <laughs> I am eternally grateful. Thank you so much, Liv. Thank you. The brilliant Liv Hewson. I loved that one. I'll be back next week with another brilliant conversation. If you want to get in touch with me, you always can. The email is hello at Take care. Bye-bye.